are not a God created by human hands. You are not a God dependent on any mortal man. You are not a God in need of anything we can give by your plan. That's just the way it is. You are not a God created by human hands. You are not Father, we declare that you are God alone. The creator of all that is and the sustainer of life and the giver of life and all that is good. And today we've come to worship you and to honor you and open our lives to you. And we pray that in this time of worship that we would hear you speaking. That you would would do something miraculous in us individually and corporately. Be glorified in our worship today, and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Before you're seated, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today.
just going to mention a couple of things that uh, are in your bulletin. I encourage you to look over things with that. But uh, Wednesday night, our children's ministries begin. Uh, you can see information about that. And I want to thank those of you who have volunteered to serve and work in those ministries. Uh, it's, a, it's a great investment of yourself in our children to help them know God and to have uh, just a, a more of a yearning for, for Him and for His kingdom. Um, also note that um, the symposium at the college this weekend, the 27th, and uh, also on into Monday, uh, about the topic of human trafficking. And this is, a, this is a big issue in our world because it's a big problem in our world. And so we want to uh, encourage you to be a part of as much of that gathering as you can. And also, we are so appreciative of the people who volunteer in our fire department here. Um, earlier this morning, the siren went off during the service, and about eight people jumped up and ran out. And uh, it must have been a false alarm because they came right back in pretty quickly. But I just thought to myself, man, people do that at 2 o'clock in the morning, and people do that at, at 8 in the morning and at 2 in the afternoon, and on days when they'd rather stay home for us. And so I, I just want to really uh, encourage you, if there are ways that you can be involved, uh, you can volunteer, you can give uh, to help our volunteer fire department uh, do what they do. And we are so appreciative and we want to be supportive of that in every way that we possibly can. There are a couple of inserts in your bulletin about uh, a ladies' fall gathering coming up this Saturday. And also, if, as a co- if you're a college student and you're interested in helping us as a congregation uh, minister to college students, give some creative ideas, things that we can do, we'd love to have your input about that. And there's a note uh, to join the College Ministries Committee. And you see information there about contacting Pastor Kevin about that. There's also a couple of inserts of uh, paintings in your bulletin. Of course, they're black and white, so it doesn't really do as much justice to the paintings as color would. But at least it is, it's an opportunity for you to see an artist's idea of the, the stories and the people that we're talking about. And uh, we have last week's Adam and Eve, and you see also the one today about Tamar and Judah. And what I want to encourage you to do is to maybe step outside of, your, uh, of what you normally do in your devotional time. And to use this as part of that, to meditate on this picture, and and to look at the artist's ideas that God may use to communicate to you in a way that you haven't seen before. It's very similar to what we encourage you to do when we have our prayer vigils, and you go in the prayer room, and you know there's clay, and there's there's paints, and there's different kinds of tactile things to do. And I've had so many people say to me, wow, I tried something new, and God really spoke to me. And and I'm not surprised because God tends to speak to us when we step outside of what is comfortable for us. So let me really encourage you to use this as one means of your meditation on the scriptures and upon what God might want to say into your life and into your heart. Scripture reading this morning is from Genesis, chapter 38. Selected verses, they are on the screen if you wish to follow along there. Genesis 38. About that time, Judah left his brothers in the hill country and went to live near his friend Hira in the town of Adullam. While there, he met the daughter of Shua, a Canaanite man. Judah married her. They had three sons. He named the first one Ur. She named the next one Onan. The third one was born when Judah was in Chazib, and she named him Shelah. Later, Judah chose Tamar as a wife for Ur, his oldest son. But Ur was very evil, and the Lord took his life. So Judah told Onan, It's your duty to marry Tamar and have a child for your brother. Onan knew the child would not be his. When he had relations with Tamar, he made sure she would not get pregnant. The Lord wasn't pleased with Onan and took his life, too. Judah didn't want the same thing to happen to his son, Shelah. So he told Tamar, go home to your father and live there as a widow until my son, Shelah, is grown. So Tamar went to live with her father. Some years later, Judah's wife died, and he mourned for her. He then went with his friend Hira to the town of Timnah, where his sheep were being sheared. Tamar found out that her father-in-law Judah was going to Timnah to shear his sheep. 
She also realized that Shelah was now a grown man, but she had not been allowed to marry him. So, she decided to dress in something other than her widow's clothes and to cover her face with a veil. After this, she sat outside the town of Anayim on the road to Timnah. When Judah came along, he did not recognize her because of the veil. He thought she was a prostitute and asked her to sleep with him. She asked, What will you give me if I do? One of my young goats, he answered. Well, what will you give me to keep until you send the goat, she asked. What do you want, he asked in return. The ring on that cord around your neck, was her reply. I also want the special walking stick you have with you. He gave them to her, they slept together, and she became pregnant. After returning home, Tamar took off the veil and dressed in her widow's clothes again. Judah had his friend Hira take a goat to the woman so he could get back the ring and the walking stick, but she wasn't there. Hira asked the people of Anayim, Where's the prostitute who sat along the road outside your town? There's never been one here, they answered. Hira went back and told Judah, I couldn't find the woman. The people of Anayim said no prostitute had ever been there. Well, if you can't find her, we'll just let her keep the things I gave her, Judah answered. We better forget about the goat or we'll look like fools. About three months later, someone told Judah, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has behaved like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. Drag her out of town and burn her to death, Judah shouted. As Tamar was being dragged off, she sent someone to tell her father-in-law, The man who gave me this ring, this cord, and this walking stick is the one who got me pregnant. Those are mine, Judah admitted. She's a better person than I am because I broke my promise to let her marry my son, Shelah. After this, Judah never slept with her again. Tamar later gave birth to twins, but before either of them was born, one of them stuck a hand out of her womb. The woman who was helping tied a red thread around the baby's hand, explained, this one came out first. Right away, his hand went back in, and the other child was born first. The woman then said, what an opening you've made for yourself. So they named the baby Perez. When the baby with the red thread came out, they named him Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. We'd like to invite the ushers to come forward and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Lost or saved, find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. Every fear has no the sound of your great name. The enemy, he has to leave at the sound of your great name. Jesus, worthy is the Lamb that was slain for us, the Son of God. 
We're going to spend a few moments praying together. And uh, if you'd like to use the altar rail as the place where you pray, please come and join me. Father, we've come today to declare your great name. You're the king. You're the ruler of all. And you're the one who truly loves us. As we come today, we pray for all among us who yearn for life to be different than it is. And so we ask you to heal the sick and to comfort those who are feeling the great pain of loss. We pray that you would restore our homes to what you and and we want them to be. Give us wisdom and insight about our lives and the future and your grace with us. And in this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts of compassion for people who have hurt us, for people we've hurt. Give us hearts of love for people who suffer around the world. Help us as individuals and as a church to be more interested in the struggles of others than we typically are. toward this world that you created and love. Give us the mind and the heart and the spirit of Christ. Father, as we think about our lives and your plans for us, open the doors that we have slammed shut. Close the doors that we have pried open. Fill this place today with newness of life to your wondrous, glorious Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Father, as we continue in worship, let us have hearts that are ready to hear what you have to say through your word and continue to work in us and be pleased with our openness and our worship of you. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Let's just get it out right up front. Some passages of Scripture probably shouldn't be read in church. And that's probably one of them. Um, you know, that, and we tried to clean that up, too. I mean, we I picked a translation that was uh, least offensive to our sensibilities as, as we read that. And that, that is the, and the same thing happened in first service. That is the weakest, thanks be to God, I've heard in a long time. After saying, this is the word of the Lord. Because we're all scratching our heads saying, really? This is the word of the Lord? Are you kidding me? You know, when we read these kinds of passages, it reminds me of, makes me think about people who, you know, for religious reasons, want to, to ban books from libraries or schools they think are too racy. And I want to say to them, have you read the book of Genesis? Have you read the scriptures, the Old Testament? Come on. And it's also a passage that reminds me, that it proves to me that the scriptures have to be something that God gave us. Because no human being in their right mind wanting to impress people would include stories like this. And to say, these are God's people. Because that's the reality of it. When we're talking about our family tree, we're talking about our family, spiritual family history, Judah and Tamar are right there. And we read stories like this and we tend to look at them as though we're from a distance saying, wow, I can't believe those people were dealing with that stuff. I can't believe they made those decisions. I can't believe they did that. As though we never do anything like that. But the reality is, this is another story from Scripture that's about us. It's us. Now you understand, this is not a story that is... um, that is intended to, to tell us 
to, to model what you do when you feel desperate. This is a story about who God is to desperate people. In order to understand it, I think we need a little bit of context. And remember, this takes place in the second century BC, later to middle part of that of that time. Very different culture, different ways of seeing things. And in that culture, Judah, who is the grandson of Abraham, one of the twelve of twelve sons of, of Jacob, Israel, marries a Canaanite woman, they have three children. And the first one named Ur. And Ur is married to Tamar. And Ur is a wicked man. And God takes his life. And they have, and now Tamar is left a widow and childless. And in that culture, extremely vulnerable position to be in. To be a widow and to be childless. So what's hard for us to understand is that in that culture, bearing children is so tied up into a woman's value and self-esteem. I mean, the, you know, you're talking about people who have no concept, really, of the afterlife like we have. They have no concept of, of heaven the way we have, of eternity the way we have. And so for them, if you want to carry on your legacy, if you want to see something happen beyond your days on this earth, then you need descendants. And you carry out your legacy through your descendants who come after you. And so you, you have people who are so tied up in bearing children. And this is where the idea of the lever of marriage comes in. This concept that we see here of, of when Ur dies, Judah says to his next brother, Onan, you need to have a child with your brother's wife so, you can, so he can carry on his, his descendants, carry on his name. It's that important. In 1 Kings 21 God is speaking to Ahab, who is one of the most wicked kings of Israel. And he says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. And what's the disaster I'm bringing on you? I'm cutting off your descendants. That's the worst thing God could do. It's, it's that important. And so Judah says to, to Onan, you need to have a child with your sister. And Onan refuses. And God is unhappy. At this act of wickedness, that he too dies. Now, Judah has one son left. And he's thinking to himself, okay, I'm for two with this woman. Maybe I don't want to give her my third son. He's too young right now anyway. So he says to Tamar, you go back to your father's house and you wait. And when Shayla gets old enough, then I'll let you know. Now, you got to understand, when Tamar goes back to her father's house, she's not free to do what she wants to do. In that culture, when she marries into Judah's family, she now belongs to Judah. And even though she goes home to live with her father's family, she's really not her father's daughter like she was. She's really Judah's daughter. She's Judah's property, in a sense. And so there's nothing she can do but wait for Judah to say, all right, Sheila is ready he can, he can now be your husband. And years go by and years go by and Tamar comes to realize that Judah's not going to keep his promise. And so Tamar decides to take things into her own hands. And she seduces her father-in-law unbeknowingly to him. And, and out of that union, twins are born. Now, again, this is not a story about what you do when you feel desperate. It is a story about how God relates to people who feel desperate. I suspect at some point or another, you and I have felt desperate. You know, that feeling you feel vulnerable. You feel like there's nothing you can do to get out of the situation you're in. You want something so badly, you don't know what to do about it. But you realize it's not going to happen. It might be a career that that you've been desperate to, to have. It might be getting out of a bad relationship. It might be getting into a relationship. It being loved. 
the dreams that we have. And, and as days go on and time moves forward, you realize that all, everything is against you. And the sense of desperation and vulnerability overwhelms you. I think it's hard for us really to grasp how, how desperate and vulnerable Tamar feels and how a lot of people in this world feel because we honestly, most of us are born into quite a bit of privilege. But it ought to make us a lot more understanding of people who are so desperate to get out of where they live that they are willing to be loaded onto the trailer of a semi-truck like cattle and risk their lives to come to this nation of freedom. Or people who will live for months in, in the hull of a ship in order to escape the circumstances in which they live and, and come to a new place of freedom. And it might help us to understand how people feel who have come here and are what we call illegal aliens and the fear and the vulnerability that they live with every day. They're desperate people. And we know something of that desperation. And when you feel so desperate, it often leads us to desperate action. Tamar feels so desperate that she is willing to put on a veil and sit by the side of the road and seduce her father-in-law. This veil that a couple people in the church have made symbolizes how desperate she feels. That she would be willing to do that. And desperate feelings of desperation often lead us to desperate action. Things that we would have never dreamed possible that we would do. But because we feel so desperate, we do them. And we're willing to engage in activities. We're willing to, to do things that, that quite frankly frighten us. In order to, to get past that desperation that's eating away at us. What I find so fascinating when I read the scriptures is, is what God has to say about people who feel desperate. About people who live their lives in vulnerability. People who are at the margins of society. People who have been shoved aside by culture. People who feel that, that they have absolutely no options left but the last resort. We read the scriptures and God says, I care for them. At least a dozen times in the early parts of the Old Testament and on into the prophets, God says, tells us how much he cares for people like widows and orphans and aliens and strangers. Psalm 68, 5 and 6, just one example. The father of orphans, the champion of widows, is God in his holy house. He provides homes for the homeless and releases the prisoners. This is our God. God cares about people who are vulnerable. Isn't it fascinating when you read the Gospels who Jesus spends time with? We would think that if he really wanted to make an impression, he'd spend time with people who have power. But over and over again, Jesus is, is condemned by the people with power because he spends time with the people who are outcasts, with the people who are most vulnerable in society, to the people who have been shoved to the margins, to the people who feel desperate. This is the kind of God that we worship who cares about people who are desperate. And whatever feelings of desperation that you may have, whatever feelings of, 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 of vulnerability that are pushing you to, to the limits, the one thing you can be confident of is that God cares for you and God can be trusted 
and he's for you. But I suspect that most of us, even with some of the feelings of desperation we may have, I suspect most of us, if we were to be honest and to put ourselves into this story, we probably identify a lot more with Judah than with Tamar. And let's be honest, most of us, most of us have certain, have pretty have higher levels of privilege than a lot of the world. I doubt if any of us are wondering if we're going to have food to eat tomorrow. Or if we're, we're going to, where we're going to sleep tonight. Or if we're going to have clothes on our backs. Those things are given for us. We are people who, who have so much. And the question that is continually confronting us is, as we live our lives, do we care about people who are vulnerable and, and who feel desperate like God does? Or is anything in our lives actually creating a sense of desperation for other people? God is pretty serious about this. I mean, it's not just do you, that's not just he cares about people who are vulnerable. He says to us that, that, he, that it, people who do anything to, to prevent the vulnerable and desperate people of the world from getting justice are cursed. His judgment comes upon us. And I suspect that, that as we read this story, many of us are, are probably a bit more offended by what Tamar does than by what Judah does, or what Judah doesn't do. And yet when you put yourself and you read the story, you understand that when Judah says, Tamar is more righteous than I am. God doesn't necessarily condone what Tamar does, but he doesn't condemn her either. But Judah is condemned for what he does. For not allowing her to bear children. And you and I need to be thinking about the ways in which our behavior, either our actions or our apathy, may actually be creating more desperation for people in this world. You know, the church has a reputation for judging people. We look a lot like Judah. When he hears that Tamar is pregnant, store out and take her out and burn her outside the city. And we tend to get, you know, all up in arms about the things that people do, but it's because we don't understand. We don't know what it's like, more than likely, I can't speak for all of us, but I suspect that a lot of us have no concept of what it means to, to grow up in, in an environment in which there's no hope of, of ever getting out of it. We're all, we, we know are drug dealers and violence. It's just a way of life. And, and to think about education is, is unthinkable. And yet we who have so much have a tendency to judge people who are struggling and, and feels a sense of desperation. There is a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10 where God is, is speaking to the Israelites about this, this issue of how they treat people who are vulnerable. And he says, you need to be careful about the way in which you treat people who, who are foreigners and aliens that come into your land, don't take advantage of them. And why don't you take advantage of them? Because you know what it's like to be vulnerable and desperate. You were slaves in Egypt. You of all people ought to understand what it feels like to be vulnerable and to be, feel so desperate that you're in a situation you could never dream of ever getting out of. And I think one of the reasons that we struggle with judging people is because we've forgotten that everything we have is only by the grace of God. Everything good in our lives, every privilege, every benefit, everything positive that's happened to us is because of the grace of God. 
We haven't earned anything. It's the grace of God. And it's when we forget that that we start judging people and we start shoving people to the margins and we start thinking that we're better than people. When all the while God is calling us to love them, to care for them, to help them live with a, a sense of release from their desperation and their vulnerability and all of the ways in which culture manipulates and abuses and uses people. It ought to change, at least cause us to step back and think again about how we view issues like illegal immigrants and immigration in general. And how we view the inner city. And how we view places of the world that are dying in poverty and drought and disease. It ought to to make us think twice about how we view issues even of things like gender. And we've come a long ways since the second century B.C., but the honest truth is we, live, we still live in a culture in which women are often treated as second-class citizens. Studies keep telling us that men and women doing the same jobs, women are paid less than men. And it isn't just out there. It's in here too. It's in the church. The place that ought to be a, a refuge of, of unity and equality Often is not. People who have God-given gifts, women who have God-given gifts to preach and to teach and to lead, in too many places are not allowed to use them. And we say, well, it's the scriptures. Well, if it really were the scriptures, then we would have to think a little bit more about all of the scriptures. And it seems to me that that God calling and, and putting into leadership as a prophet and a teacher and a leader, women like Deborah and Huldah would at least carry as much weight as a few things that Paul says in a specific setting to a specific group of people about a specific circumstance. We need to think about some of these issues. We need to think about our bias, our prejudices, and the ways in which we judge people. Because our God says he cares for people that the rest of the world shoves aside. And he's passionate about people that feel vulnerable And we tend to value people with power and judge the people who are down and out. And God tends to judge the people with power and value the people who are down and out. I think it's important for us not to be too hard on Tamar and the decision that she makes that this veil represents But I think it's important also for us to understand that God is not necessarily condoning Tamar. I mean, this is a story in which virtually everybody involved is in the wrong. A few generations later, there's going to be a story in the book of of Ruth. It takes place during the Judges where Ruth and Boaz find themselves in a similar situation. Ruth, whose, whose husband dies and she's a foreigner in Israel... And they discover that she has a relative, Boaz, who this Leverite marriage might connect with. And instead of seducing him, she goes to him and said, hey, would you be willing to marry me? And they do it right. And God is honored through that. But even when desperation leads Tamar to not do it right, God is at work. You know, when you get to the, when you, when you read through the book of Genesis, I mean, it's like Abraham's family is, is Peyton Place, all my children, 
dynasty and Jersey Shore all wrapped up together into one. Really? I mean, try to hit all the generations of our people there. You know, I mean, and, and, and what's so fascinating to me is that God says, these are my people. And we want to say, really? Seriously? This is the best you could do? Are you kidding me? And God says, yeah, these are my people. And what is so fascinating to me is when Matthew writes his gospel and he starts out listing the genealogy of Jesus. He only mentions four women besides Mary. And the first woman he mentions is not Abraham's wife, Sarah, and it's not Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and it's not Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel, it's Tamar. And I suspect that this story in Genesis 38 and the mention of Tamar in Matthew 1 is to remind God's people that he has a soft spot in his heart for people who are desperate and vulnerable. People in this world that have been shoved aside. And he's calling the church He's calling us to be his witness and to have that same soft spot in our hearts and to have that same mind that we see in Christ. Because the the church is not about God bringing together people who are perfect and forming a little club. It's about God welcoming all of the imperfect people and through Christ transforming us into people that actually look something like Jesus. That's why he comes. That's why he's here. And that's the church. Someone sent me a video last week that's been put out as, a, as some kind of campaign about trying to, to get people to come back to church. And we're not really talking about, you know, people coming back to church necessarily today, but underlying this, the message of this video is exactly what we're talking about. Of what the church is about. Of who God is to desperate, vulnerable, marginalized people and what he wants us as the church to be. Here's a few reasons why people don't go to church. I can't come to church until I get my life together. Church is how I got my life together. Church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And there's always room for one more. All they care about is your money. They care about me, not about my money. Is there some kind of dress code? Yes, the code is wear some clothes. Church, it just makes me nervous. I was nervous at first. And then I felt right at home. I'm not sure I believe everything that you believe. But you can still belong. Church is for wimpy, girly men. You want to say that again? If you knew me and what I've done, you wouldn't want me. If you knew me and what I've done... You wouldn't be worried. You can come to my church even if you were brought up Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Jewish, Mormon, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Church of Christ, Southern Baptist, a little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing. See, it's not about a religion. It's about a relationship. So please come to my church where nobody's perfect. 
where beginners are welcome, where socks are optional, but grace is required, where forgiveness is offered, where hope is alive, and where it's okay to not be okay, really. Father, we thank you that your grace reaches to us and every person in this world. This morning, if we have feelings of desperation and vulnerability, rejection, us to know that you love us and you're for us no matter what we've done. And Father, if anything of us individually or corporately is judgmental, makes people feel even more desperate and vulnerable, and unloved and unwanted, forgive us. And in Christ, give us a new heart. We pray this through Christ. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. Lost are saved, find their way at the sound of your
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.